Let me tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Goodness, it's a Monday. <laughs> I, I really, I, it is a Monday, isn't it? Yes, it's, well, the, the, at least I know what day it is. That's a good omen. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What, what? It's today's Friday? No, it's Monday. In the name of the Father, the, the voice in my head is trying to yank my chain. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right. Let us go to the big book on the coffee table. Let's see. Uh, the, let's see. Okay, got, I got a new computer set up here. It always happens. Uh, but we, I, there, I found the reading just where I put it. And uh, briefly, I want to talk about the readings, not too long, because I really want to talk about the feast day today. Um, and and um, uh, this is, this is uh, the book of Revelation. Very, very... Uh, not a great uh, deal I want to speak about, but um, I love this. Uh, I heard the sound that was like that of harpists playing their harps. It's this. It's uh, the sound of harpists harping is an old translation. I like that. The sound of harpists harping. What else would harpists do? But that's not what I'm going to talk about. All right, let's let's go on here. Um, the sound of worship. Okay. Um, the they were singing what seemed to be a new hymn before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn this hymn except the 144,000 who had been ransomed from the earth. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been ransomed as first fruits of the human race for God and the Lamb. On their lips no deceit has been found. They are unblemished. You know, there are some people who interpret this to mean there are only 144,000 people going to heaven. And that is, of course ridiculous um the 144,000 this is of course remember i'm always telling you that that the 144,000 is, is is these people are jewish at least familiar with uh jewish number values and the the, the idea that that um uh, 
that 144,000 is literally true. Well, it also says there's a great, uh, uh, a great multitude from every nation. So that that's just ridiculous. So what does the 144,000 mean? Well, I think if, if you remember, I can only count to 20 if my shoes are off, but, um, the, uh, uh, this is a multiple of 12, um, it's, I think it's 12 times 12,000, and 12 is a perfect number for governance. A lot of people talk about the 12 tribes, and this, this is, uh, um, you know, I, I think this may be a valid interpretation, that these are the people from the tribes of, of Israel, uh, there are 12 tribes, and uh, they're the first fruits. I think, you know, I, I, I talk about this guy fairly frequently, uh, uh, Dr. Rodney Stark. He writes a book called The Rise of Christianity. He's a sociologist of religion, but sociology. And he does hard sociology, which depends on numbers and records. And he didn't theology, uh, but he has done a rather exhaustive study of, for instance, tomb inscriptions in the first century. And he makes the point that... Uh, uh, People ask, well, why didn't the Jews accept Christ? Who says they didn't? Uh, many, many did. Perhaps a majority, Dr. Clark uh, or Dr. Stark would make the point. Um, uh, but they then blended into the Greek-speaking population. There were, oh, there were, was it seven, between seven and ten million Jews in uh, um, uh, the empire at the time of Christ. And... Uh, uh, 20 years later, th there were under a million, apparently. Well, war, famine, etc. Uh, don't quote me on the figures. I, I, I'm not. But it was it was a, a huge uh, diminution of the Jewish population of the empire. Uh, wars, famines, etc. would certainly have lessened the numbers of Jews, but not to the point of of a million uh, from seven million. Uh, so what happened? Well, it's theorized they became Christians and blended into the, the Greek-speaking population. Um, in a sense, I think Christianity can be thought of as the first Reformed Judaism. I can read the Hebrew Scriptures, worship the God of Abraham, and eat shrimp. So I remember Rabbi Lefkowitz saying, when the Messiah comes, we still can't eat shrimp. And I said, Rabbi, it's all farm-raised now. You're not missing anything. But uh, again, I digress. So... Um, this well may be uh, uh, a reference to, to that first generation of Christians who were ethnically and even genetically Jewish. Um, that's possible. But it also symbolizes uh, completeness. 144,000 is a, you know, 12 is a very complete number. It's, I, I think I've explained to you three is the number of divine perfection, four is the number of human perfection, so seven is the number of complete perfection, well, three times four is 12, if I'm correct, I think so, and uh, this is 12 times 12,000, this is ultimate completeness, so th this is a, a, a very important idea. So, that said, um, let us move on to something different, if I can find where I'm going here with this particular computer. So I wouldn't worry about it. There are there are an uncountable number of people in heaven. So uh, there you go. Um, let's go quickly to the gospel, just quickly, because it's such a beautiful gospel. Okay. Um, 
I tell you truly, well, this is the story of the widow's mite. And very interestingly, Father Francis Phyllis was actually one of my teachers uh, when I was a lad at Loyola in the classics department. He, he well, was really kind of a lecturer. We'd come in and do special lectures. And his one of his specialties was uh, ancient Greek and Roman coins. And um, he claimed to be able to identify coins on the eyes of the man of the shroud of Turin. And it was, they said, you're nuts, Phyllis. Uh, 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 they wouldn't call him father, but back then, uh, you're not Phyllis. That uh, uh, the 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 C, uh, the he claimed to be able to identify the beginning of the word Caesar, C A I. Well, they pointed out that no, the beginning of the word Caesar is spelled with a K in Greek. So you're just reading into it. He said I that Pontius Pilate was notorious for his bad financial practices and his bad coinage. So it's a misprint. I'll find coins with the misprint. So he went down to of all places, Marshall Fields in Chicago, which had an incredible coin department with lots of ancient Greek and Roman coins, and he found not one but two coins with the misprint on it, uh, Caesar spelled in Greek with a C instead of a K. And I guess one of the coins had 70 points of congruence with the the coins on the eyes of the shroud as Father Phyllis identified them. And um, uh, the thing that's amazing to me is that Father Phyllis uh, predicted from looking at the shroud the, the mistaken uh, inscription on a on a on a pile uh, punches pilot era coin, which if that's true and it see I think it is true, uh, it dates the shroud to twenty nine, along with many other tests. So, I, I firmly believe that the shroud of Turin is what it seems to be, uh, and it is a great evidence for us in our times of the, I think of the resurrection, a gift saved for our times, but I digress. So what I really want to talk about at the moment is the feast day of the presentation of the blessed Virgin. Where do we get that? Um, we get that, I believe from the proto evangelion of St. James. Uh, that means the first gospel of St. James. It is not a canonical gospel, but it is also not a Gnostic gospel. It may be as early as 100, 110 A.D., um, and it was a collection of stories and myths and legends and some facts about Christ. And um, in it, we see the Blessed Mother being presented in the temple as a, as a little girl. Well, the Jews didn't do that. Oh, yes, they did. Um, that that uh, girls could take what was called the Nazarite vow and... Um, you know, the, the, this tradition of the presentation of the Blessed Mother may well have to do with that, that especially among people like the Essenes, it seems that, you know, the, the, the Dead Sea sectaries, these little groups that huddled about the Dead Sea, some of them would be happy to dedicate their daughters to the work of the temple. And now don't shoot the messenger, but they did what back then, of course, not now, was thought of as women's work. You know, men are with their clunky large hands are not so good at things like sewing. Uh, so, uh, uh, of course this is a stereotype and not universally true, but let's, let's be patient with, with history and me. Uh, but so there, apparently there were girls who, who did work in the temple and, um, very interestingly, uh, 
they would be married because they didn't have convents. They didn't actually live in the temple. It's very interesting that the house of, of Saints Anna and Joachim is cheek by jowl with the uh, north. It would be the northeastern corner of the temple of the Temple Mount. So they lived right adjacent to the, the temple, the Temple Mount, uh, the Temple Esplanade. And uh, that's the traditional site of the home of Joachim and Anna in Jerusalem. And, um, you know, they didn't have convents, though. So a woman alone was not possible. So they would be married in a, 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 a chaste marriage. This is the theory. They would be married in a chaste marriage, and I think it was the practice, to someone who knew the situation, who they'd taken a vow. Our Blessed Mother was a close relative of St. Joseph, which was done at the time. Cousin marriage was very common and still is in the Middle East among both Christians and Muslims. Um, the, um, this was to protect the Blessed Mother. And um, this tradition is reflected in uh, this Proto-Evangelion of St. James. So uh, that's this this feast, the presentation of the Blessed Mother, may really, really be reflecting an event historical. I have, you know, I have no problem believing that. It's an ancient tradition. Now, that said, I want to share my rather odd theory about the Immaculate Conception and pray that it isn't heretical. Most of us think that our Blessed Mother was immaculately conceived in order to give a perfect humanity to Christ, which is true. Uh, the inheritance he received from his mother was unsullied by original sin. Now remember that our Blessed Mother was the third person in history immaculately conceived. People say, well, Immaculate Conception isn't in the Bible. It most certainly is. Adam and Eve were conceived, albeit in the mind of God, without the effects of original sin. They did not accept their Immaculate Conception. They did not want to be obedient to God as his children, but they wanted to know what he knew and to make their own decisions without submitting to him. They wanted to be the friends of God and not the children of God. There's a bit of a difference. You know, Jesus is our friend, but he's more than our friend. He's our Lord. So uh, <clears throat> she was, in that sense, the third person immaculately conceived, and she accepted the responsibility of the immaculate conception. I mean, I've heard people say, boy, that'd be great to not have this tendency to sin and this darkening of the intellect and the will. And She was Our Lady of Sorrows. She was able to feel things in a way that you and I cannot feel. She was able to suffer in a unique way with her son on the cross. Uh, the Immaculate Conception uh, was a responsibility that she accepted for love of her son, love of our Heavenly Father, and love of us. So there, at least that's the way I look at it. And I don't know that she was gifted by grace, grace, they call it preventing grace, grace borrowed as if ahead of time from Calvary. Uh, she, uh, St. John Paul the Great said she was uh, um, the most redeemed of women. She needed a savior. Her savior was Christ, her son. She wasn't, didn't, but, but that grace was given her as a special gift not just for the perfection of the humanity that she gave her only son, but because she was the first member of the church. Think about it. The church is holy. And believe me, it isn't holy because I'm in it. Quite the opposite. 
I'm a bit of dead weight sometimes. At one point in history, there was only one person in the church. The first member of the church was Mary, princess of the house of David, our blessed mother and the mother of God. She was the first to accept Christ, quite literally. She was faithful to him at the foot of the cross. She was filled again with the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, who was already living within her at Pentecost. She is the icon of the church. In a certain sense, I, you can, I think you could say she's the incarnation of the church. And the church needed to be holy from its inception. And because the church has a treasury of saints... It's a holy church, despite the fact that I am not a holy person. This, I think, was as important to the Immaculate Conception as giving that perfect nature to Christ. She gave a holy nature to the church, uh, because if it were up to me, the church would not be holy, because I'm not very holy. Maybe you are, but I ain't. So, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Now... And believe me, I'm not just being pious about that. Um, uh, so so I think that's part of the meaning of the Immaculate Conception. You know, I started thinking about this because it bothered me. The morning offering, which I try to say every day, O Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings this day in union with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Okay, I can see my life being sacrificial with Christ. I talk about that a lot. But why through the Immaculate Heart of Mary? Think about it. The whole church stood at the foot of the cross when Mary stood there. And because I am joined to the body of Christ, I'm joined to the church. When I go to Mass and when I unite my own joys and sorrows with Christ's and with hers at Mass, I'm standing in the person of Mary the princess of the house of David, our blessed mother. I am standing with Our Lady at the foot of the cross with St. John, with Mary Magdalene, the whole church in the person of our blessed mother stood at the foot of the cross. And she was my representative and your representative there, holy to the end. That's why we love her so. We don't worship her. We love her because she in union with, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so did she. She gave her son up to die. Uh, and she knew she's the mother of sorrows. And Simeon had said in the temple, a sword will pierce your heart. And she said yes to the will of the Father. So I think those people who don't understand the great gift that our Blessed Mother is are, are missing out on a substantial part of the Christian mystery. And uh, I, for my part, have no problem believing that from her childhood she was dedicated knowingly by her parents to the Lord. And St. Joseph continued that dedication. And we need to imitate her and stand faithful to Christ at the foot of every cross we encounter. All right. That said, let us go to a break and we'll come back with letters. God willing, I can make the computer happen. And you can call in and ask any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, the church, and the big book on the coffee table, the Bible. Don't ask about auto mechanics. It's been a bad day that way.
The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters Flexible Premium Life Insurance. For less than $12 a month, a 40-year-old can get a half million dollars of coverage. Go to relevantradio.com slash forester today. An Illinois Life Insurance Society, not available in all states. I've got plenty to be thankful for. I haven't got great big yachts to sail from shore to shore. Still, I've got plenty to be thankful for. This is true. Whether you I've think about it or not, I've got a lot of problems. You've still got a lot of stuff to be thankful for, and Thanksgiving's coming up. We'll work on it. That's your assignment of the week. All right, let's go to letters. This is a wonderful letter from Ana. Hola, Padre. We have all been hurt or betrayed, and we struggle with forgiveness. And as often as you say to let go, yet when saying or our evening or morning prayers, some psalms are trouble, wishing bad to our enemies or people who have wronged us, like Psalm 109, verse 1 to 20. It does not help. <laughs> Anna Maria. Well, Anna Maria, the psalms are written uh, by their human author, uh, first of all, I have, I have two thoughts on that. They're written by their human author. Well, maybe three thoughts. They're written by their human author as honest complaints to God. Second of all, St. Ambrose called, this is going to be a little a little odd for some people. You'll forgive me, but you're used to me by now. St. Ambrose called the Psalms the gymnasium of the soul. What was a gymnasium? The word gymnasium comes from the Greek word gymnos, which means wearing only that suit of clothes given us by our mother on the day of our birth, our birthday suit. Oddly enough, in the ancient world, sports were played <laughs> pretty much in the all together. And uh, it, gymnasium literally means the place of nakedness. The gymnasium of the soul. Now, I don't know what this St. Ambrose meant, but I think we can read into it. The Psalms are the place where you are absolutely naked before the Lord. All the good, all the bad. They're written, many of them, by David, and he was not that nice a guy. Uh, and his, all of his flaws are showing. The Psalms, the gymnasium of the soul. But I think more fully and more completely, the Psalms are written ultimately by the Holy Spirit. I believe that the the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of Scripture, using many human authors to do it. The Scriptures are a wonderfully human book that are co-authored by human beings, but ultimately written by a divine author, the Holy Spirit. That said, there's a spiritual meaning to this. Who is my enemy? Me my bad habits, my temptations, my tendency to sin, my tendency to anger. So I am wishing death to my enemies in the Psalms. And death to my enemies, even to even when it says smashing little children on the rocks, that sounds horrible. Well, it was. But now what does it mean? What are what the, the children of my temptations, the children of my bad impulses? So the spiritualized... Uh, meaning of the psalm is lord take away my enemies which are the things the sins that i cling to so 
those are the three the three ways I look at it the 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 gymnasium of the soul the the humanity of someone like David and the other authors of the Psalms but most of all the fact that the spiritual meaning beneath these things is I am my own worst enemy. So I hope that helps, Anna. God bless you. Um, and let's see here. Where, where, oh, God, oh, good grief. Where, where did I put the other letter? I got lots of letters. This is one I hope I'm getting the full meaning of it. Uh, I'm going to have to put on my, my heavier glasses. Remember, the shorter words. and more precisely, uh, more precise the questions, the better I can... I can uh, uh, read it. All right. Um, thank you in advance. If you can help me with this question, well, remember my motto, what I don't know I can always make up. I fully embrace the teaching that Our Lady is the Ark of the New Covenant. God wanted a perfect dwelling place for himself at the Incarnation. Okay, yeah. But I also think there, as I just said earlier, that there are many more reasons for the Immaculate Conception. I also believe Mary did not conceive any other children. Additionally, St. Joseph and Mary were already perhaps consecrated, both virgins, both consecrated virgins. However, after bearing the Son of God, it's likely Joseph and Mary realized it was right to keep uh, her womb pure. Well, you know, I don't know that I would put it that way. You know, uh, they they had a vocation to which they were faithful. Um, you know, that, that, that intimacy between a legitimately married husband and wife is, is, is a holy thing. I think we have to remember that. Uh, it's not a lesser calling. If I were to pursue it, it would be a lesser calling in my life because I have another calling. You know, that, that, that remember what uh, St. Paul says, he has prepared good works for us that we may walk in them. And a defilement is to violate the will of God, uh, the express will of God for my life. And, and I, I, I think that the intimacy between a husband and wife, need, it needs to be remembered that that's a very holy thing. Uh, so, uh, well, moving on. Uh, that said, I believe the Blessed Virgin, yeah, I wonder about other objects in Christ's life. Clearly, Jesus sat on chairs, was wrapped in blankets, and these items probably were touched by humans. Um, I wonder what the church believes about the other items that came in contact. Well, if we have any of them that we're pretty sure about or possible items, we venerate them as relics. But you got to remember... The scripture says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. That in a certain sense, the entire universe is a relic of Christ. That that um, everything has been made holy in some way. You know, uh, I think one must have the greatest reverence for uh, the Holy Eucharist. But there's no way you are going to keep minute fragments of the Holy Eucharist from scattering. That's terrible. Maybe we should invent some sort of vacuum seal thing. No, Christ shed his blood on the ground of Calvary and sanctified the ground of Calvary. One should give due reverence to the body of Christ, but one can can take it to the point of uh, how to put this in a way that is not uh, inappropriate. One can grieve the Holy Spirit, I think, by being so untrusting of God's providence that, that well, shouldn't every chair that Jesus sat on and, and shouldn't uh, every, every dish from which he ate shouldn't have been preserved? Um, uh, it would be nice, but no. It, 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 Jesus, it, he, he, 
Jesus, the scriptures say, became like us in all things but sin. So if we have an object that we know was used by Christ or possibly used by Christ, we treat it with great reverence. But that's for our sake and not for his. For him, uh, he's embraced the world. For us, we need to embrace the world in the way that he embraced it, not in a sinful or 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 uh, permissive way. So it, it's a fine balance. One can become excessively scrupulous, which is a failure to trust the grace of God. One can be excessively casual, which is the sin of presumption. You don't want to commit the sin of presumption. You don't want to be scrupulous. It's, it's, it's you know, you trust God. <laughs> so I, I hope that answers the question. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, that... that um, I think I told you the story last week, but it was one of the most impressive stories I, I remember. The Vietnamese, uh, many, many of them, suffered terrible persecution for the sake of their faith, the Vietnamese Christians. And I had a parish that was a third to half Vietnamese, uh, at least. And it was, I, I really got to know Vietnamese people. They are very strong people. And, and I will never forget a woman who was, uh, she was insane. She was clinically in, insane. Uh, she took the Blessed Sacrament and broke it into tiny pieces in front of the school children. She recanted communion, walked out of the church. Of course, I didn't notice I was busy giving communion. She walked out of the church and she broke the host up into tiny pieces and proceeded to stomp on every piece. The, the Vietnamese uh, um, community, uh, uh, senior citizens, when they saw this on the church steps, they immediately began to pick up every visible piece of uh, the host and consume it. By the time I got out there, when someone came and said, what, you know what's going on outside? I ran out. The entire host had been consumed by the Vietnamese senior citizens. Well, shouldn't we have vacuumed the place and put caution tape around? No, I don't think so heroic reverence had been paid to the blessed sacrament and what was humanly and reasonably possible was done this is not chemistry it is it is it's much more poetry than chemistry it's real i believe in the absolute reality of the transformation of bread and wine however god i believe was so ple he had great pity on that poor sick woman but I believe he was so deeply pleased by the heroism of those those valiant Vietnamese little old ladies and little old men. So, you know, we give the reverence that we can in a human and in a, a, a normal way to the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, I think that that we, in a sense, disrespect God when we when we think he can't take care of himself. It's a fine balance. Um um, I, I am alarmed, not by the fact that, that some of the precious blood may spill or some minute invisible fragments of the host may scatter, but at the intentional disrespect that is so common today. Uh, you know, if we honor the Lord in our hearts as well as we can, God is pleased. But in a lot of places that isn't happening at all. Well, with that thought, uh, we're going to take a break. Um, I think we take a break. I'll come back with a word of the day. And um, uh, um, 
and, and then we'll have phone calls at 888-914-9149. Let me give you that number again, 888-914-9149. Today we'd like to thank Raymond, who's listening in New Jersey, for donating his Subaru. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles by visiting relevantradio.com slash car today. My, oh my, what a wonderful day. Good grief. Plenty of sunshine. This song is not sung by a Truman. <laughs> okay. Maybe a Bavarian. All right. Let's, let's, uh, let's go to our word of the day. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Well, the word, I, I don't know if this is useful at all, but um, I, John, looked, and there was the lamb standing on Mount Sinai, 144,000 who had his name, the father's name, and his father's name written on their foreheads. The forehead is the metopon, metops in Greek. It means the thing, the thing before the eyes, uh, or the face, uh, before the face. And the 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 idea, I think, uh, this is at least what it made me think of. On the high priest's mitre was the uh, a, a, a sort of bra- a gold little plate that said, "Holy unto the Lord." Um, uh, and it occurs to me that that might be another meaning to this 144,000. 144,000 can, can represent fullness. And we're a, a priestly people, not in the sense of we're all presbyters, but we're all sacrificial people. We're called to be sacrificial. And that 144,000 is about fullness. And those people, this could refer to those people who led sacrificial lives, uh, fulfilling the ministry of the sacrificers. Um, I talked about the difference between presbyteros and hieros, the difference between elder and sacrificer, both words being translated as priest in English, and that sacrificer should not be translated as priest, but there's no way around it. It's throughout the language. But this idea of the, the father's name, and the son's name written on their foreheads um, uh, made me think of this, the mitre of the of the high priest. So we're called to a high priestly life, all of us, 144,000, which can stand for the fullness of the church, all of us. We're called to that. Uh, that was just another thought on it. So, well, let's go to phone calls. Okay. This is smart. Maxwell's smart. Nathaniel from Lewis, Colorado, are you with us? Uh, yes, Father, thank you. I just have a quick question. Maybe. Sure. I was just wondering, with the bishops doing their Eucharistic revival, can we have a revival of the Eucharist without addressing reverence at Mass? Like how people dress, silence during Mass, before Mass. Like, I mean, somebody was banging on a tambourine during the glory of the other day in my ear. And, like, <laughs> and there's never silence during... There's never silence during the presidential prayer. So after the gifts are brought up and the choir is supposed to stop singing, they keep singing. And, it, I mean, it even says they're not so... Can we well, do this without talking about reverence? Nathaniel, 
I'm sure you've heard my motto, food and music should not hurt. <laughs> so <laughs> and you're, you're talking to an old Pentecostal. I've had a lot of tambourines banging in my ears, which I much enjoy at a prayer meeting, not at a mass. But at any rate, um, the, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that, and I think that, that, that a lot of bishops are beginning to think about this, uh, uh, um, but I think you're absolutely right. We cannot have a Eucharistic revival unless reverence for the real presence is reestablished. It makes me crazy when some kid comes up and grabs the lucky chip and runs away. This is nuts. How often in my life have I um, uh, gone to fish a, a blessed, uh, uh, the blessed sacrament out of a, uh, 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 you know, the missile holder that's in the in the in the pew or 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 off the floor or out of the garbage. I mean, it's just it's heartbreaking. And I really I think you're right. We need we the bishops need to address that issue. And maybe we need to rethink communion in the hand or something. I I have had to chase people down saying, give me that back if you're not going to consume it. Um, you know, and there's not proper instruction. People who are have not made their first communion take the host and i remember i was at a wedding uh and one of the groomsmen received the host and he looked to be from an ethnicity that's traditionally catholic uh he took the host and he put it in the pocket of his uh uh his tuxedo his rented tuxedo i could see that thing going back to the the uh to the the the, the, the rental store with the blessed sacrament in the pocket and this is horrible. Uh, so I went back to the guy and I said, are you going to consume that? And he looked at me and said, you know, I don't have a wife and family. I don't make a lot of money. And that's because I believe that that thing in your pocket is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Now, either consume it or give it back to me. And he's looking at me with wide eyes. I couldn't help myself. You know, this just was, was barbaric as far as I was concerned. I think you're right. I think we do have to address it. So... And I think the bishops will address it. I, well, I, I want to, I want to divert, I want to digress. I certainly know one bishop where I think will address it. I had a wonderful time this weekend. I played a little hooky and went down to, to Texas. I, Nick, play beautiful, beautiful Texas. You have all read the beautiful stories of the countries far over the sea. From whence came our ancestors To establish this land of the free <laughs> There are some folks who still like to travel Well, to get to the... What they have Go on. Over there. Oh, play it through, play it through. But when they go look, it's not like the book And they find there is none to compare To beautiful, beautiful Texas Beautiful, beautiful Texas. I had so much fun. I, I went to a couple events for Red Sea Radio, uh, um, uh, uh, religious education for the domestic congregation, in other words, the family. And I had so much fun. And I just wanted to, there was one lady, Kim, who just, uh, she, she brought three tables. So God bless you, Kim. I don't know if you're listening, but, um, then I got the privilege to, to, to see, my old friend, uh, he was he was actually one of my students, one of the ones who stayed awake in class, um, uh, Bishop Olson of Texas, and and some of uh, his people. It was it was really refreshing, and um, and uh, I know so many good bishops, and and uh, I will do my best as we talk about this Eucharistic revival thing, to 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 let the few bishops that I do know uh, 
address that issue. So I think that's an important issue. So, But I did just want to make a little shout-out to Red Sea Radio while we had the opportunity. I had such a wonderful time, and I'm so grateful for the, their hospitality and for Bishop Olson's hospitality. So, uh, so, Nathaniel, all I can say is I'm on the same page with you. So I hope that helps a little. As I'm discerning, you know, my role in that the revival at the parish level, and I think I'm mm-hmm. going to volunteer to join the team and see what Good. happens. <laughs> good, good. And, uh, you know, uh, stick to your guns, brother. I mean, uh, uh, Mass is not an entertainment. I'm sure if you listen to the program much, you hear me say that all the time. This is the sacrifice of the Mass. And uh, we need to be a sacrificial people. So God bless you, and thanks for your, your concern, and thanks for your volunteering. Uh, remember, speak the truth in love. Don't yell at anybody, but don't give up on the truth. All right, God bless, Nathaniel. Yes, Father, thank you. All right, let's go to Aaron, who's been waiting most patiently. Hi, Father. Thanks for taking my call. Um, Good. The question I had is, interpreting dreams still biblical? Well, it is still biblical, yes. I mean, dreams can have meaning. God can still speak in dreams. But remember, 1 Corinthians uh, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, 12th chapter says, I prophesy in part, I know in part. That, that um, if there's something persistent in your life, uh, and you dream about it, the Lord may be speaking to you. I remember uh, uh, dreaming about about ordination. When I was struggling toward uh, ordination, I it was in my dreams. And um, uh, I remember uh, an old priest, uh, a dear old wise old priest, when I asked him, how do you know you should be ordained a priest? And he said, if if it's what you want in your deepest heart. It's what the Lord wants. And I thought most of us don't want the desires of our heart. We want the desires of our head. It takes a while to get to the desires of our heart. And God speaks, I think, in the desires of our heart. And those sometimes emerge in dreams. So dreams are both us talking and I can be the Lord talking. But remember what St. Paul said, that every word is confirmed by two or three witnesses. If it's just I had a dream, so that's what I got to do. Well, no, pray about it, discern it, and let the Lord speak clearly. Does that help a little? Absolutely. Thank you. Well, God bless you, Aaron, and uh, may your dreams be pleasant. <laughs> All right. No 12-inch pizzas immediately before bed. Let us go to John. Are you with us, John? Is connection good? Oh, yeah. Oh, thank, thank you, Father. I, my wife and I love your sermons at, at St. Lambert Skokie. My, my, oh, God my, bless you. my question. Oh, thank you, Father. You've got to write a book to cast <laughs> a space for, for dummies or something. But I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll get right to my question, Father. Our beloved Lucille the Pug passed Saturday morning, right, right in our bed, right between our, my wife Aww. and I. And, and, and I know, Father, thank you. And, and I know man is, of course, number one. But I was going to ask you, Father, you the question. Is there any place in, you know, I thought I heard something about John Paul II, some say something about anim- that dogs have souls, and but I, I, I don't know. I, I, is, is there a place in heaven? Is there anything well, in, in Catholic yes, faith? Yes, yes. I, I don't know that there is any official pronouncement. Um, there are theologians who weighed in on it. And dogs, animals, do not have immortal souls. However, let us look at what Scripture says in the story uh, about the Sadducees quizzing Jesus about a woman who had seven husbands, whose wife will she be? He says, to God, all are alive. In other words, though a, an animal may not have an immortal soul, nothing 
nothing ceases to exist uh, in it, in its in its goodness and fullness uh, in the awareness of the Lord. And the Scripture says, "We shall know as we are known." In other words, I won't know when I when I leave this world. If I leave in a state of grace, God willing. I will not know because I see it or hear it or touch it or smell it. I will know through the knowing of God. And I won't know all that God knows. I'll never be infinite. But but we will know in the way that we are known. And nothing is lost to God. So your dog does not cease to exist, does not completely cease to exist because God has not forgotten that dog. Now, I, I know that's a little complicated, but dogs don't have immortal souls. But that doesn't mean they cease to exist and that we won't be able to enjoy Fido in doggy heaven. I suspect that the good and the beauty and the love that dogs give us is something that God does not take away in heaven. You know, if heaven, you know, the nuke, we, we don't go to heaven, I always tell you. We go to paradise. And we're going to receive a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. We read in the book of Revelation. If they're just trees and flowers in the new creation, that's going to be kind of boring. I suspect that there will even be mosquitoes, but they won't bite. So, <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah, so I, I think that, that we have good hope. Now, if there is anyone who knows if there's been any kind of official statement on that, let me know it, because I think a lot of people would want to know it. Dogs do not have immortal souls, but to God nothing is lost. Does that help a little? Oh, oh, thank you, Father. That gives me, that gives, I'm going to tell my wife, and that gives me hope, and I'm sure she's oh, going to yeah. have hope with what you just said. Thank you, thank well, you, God Father, bless, and God bless. Yeah. Uh, God bless. Yeah, you know, animals, I, that's one of the reasons I don't have pets, because you'll, especially a dog, you love them so much. Um, and they're like, mem they're not only a member of the family, the favorite one. <laughs> so at any rate, all right, let's see, let's, what, how are we doing time-wise? We're doing good. We are doing well, I suppose. Uh, Teresa from Palos Heights, are you with us? Yes, Father, thank you. I have a brief question. Um, I go to Eucharistic Adoration, et cetera, and Mass, and I have developed a real interest in near-death experience. Ah, I love yes. to listen to them while sure. I do my housework, et cetera. Uh, and I listen to them a lot, and they make me very happy. And I've mm -hmm. yet never heard anything contrary to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. But yeah. as is there any um, danger here in anything sacrificial? Um, you know, I think there can be. Um, you know, remember, the devil is a liar and the father of lies. Uh, one of the things that you don't hear in these experiences is that, that, you know... You know, I'm also fascinated by them. And in my position as a priest, uh, uh, I've heard hundreds and hundreds of stories from people who've had those experiences. And not mm -hmm. all of them are the light in the, tun the tunnel and the light. I have known people who said they went to hell. Um, and the interesting thing about that is uh, it seems that if you have a bad death experience, you forget it. It's so bad you forget it promptly. So a lot of people think, well, that means everybody goes to heaven because everybody has a nice experience. No, a lot of people have a very unhappy experience. There's a real heaven and there's a real hell. Now, we shouldn't be afraid of, of hell if we're doing our best to stay in a state of grace and trust the grace of God and the mercy of Christ. However, to presume that, well, everybody goes to heaven. No, they don't. I don't believe that. I can hope it, but I don't believe it. So, um, uh, um 
Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with listening to these experiences. Sometimes, that's interesting, there's a whole bunch of people who talk about experiences of reincarnation. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that might be a type of haunting. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know these things. And I don't want to get too much into anything that is that smacks of the occult, because that can be dangerous. So if you do hear something that is very contradictory to the faith. Realize the devil is a liar and the father of lies. I think in general, though, these experiences can be very uplifting. Beautiful movie that I think is, is uh, uh, we're seeing is Heaven is for Real that deals with this experience. So um, there's, there's a few ob real objective cases that really uh, are very objective. So does that help? Does that answer your question? Very much, and I'll watch the movie Heaven Is for Real. Yeah, Heaven Thank Is you. for Real. It's 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 a, a very moving film, and uh, uh, but I would I would if anybody does have any kind of official pronouncement from anybody official, I would love to know it. Let us go now right, to. Father, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much, Teresa. Let's see. Are we? Let's go to Teresa from Schaumburg. Are you with us, Teresa? Teresa. Hello, yes. What Hi. can I do for you? Hi, Father Hi. Simon. Hello. So my question, hello. My question for you is, it's come to my attention that there's a person who's engaging in witchcraft oh. and uh, seems to be directing it my way. I wasn't too concerned being, you know, Catholic and living a sacramental mm -hmm. life, but yeah. I did have a priest, uh, a charismatic priest, you know, pray, do some mm -hmm. prayers, and, and I took a, quite a tumble down the stairs the next day. He thought maybe yeah. there was some retaliation going on. So my initial oh, he, thought he was, took, Catholic, he took he took the tumble, or did no, you take I the did. tumble? Oh, Another all right, go on. Did, but yeah, okay. I did. So, um, and so initially, I thought, you know, I'm I'm Catholic. I have the sacraments. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. But then I started mm -hmm. thinking about you know Padre Pio, sure. <laughs> some other yeah. saints, and I was like, maybe there's a little more. To this and a more yeah. you know more I could be doing well yeah the devil the devil really tries to strike strike hard and and exorcists especially are, are prone to these odd accidents I've known a few exorcists and, and it, it is I mean we're in a real warfare um, to me the most powerful prayer against uh, uh, things satanic is is the rosary because I've seen it in exorcisms, as I always do a disclaimer. I've never been an exorcist, though I have assisted at exorcisms. The devil really hates the Hail Mary because it reminds him that God so loved the world that he allowed his, he, he gave his only begotten son as the incarnate savior. The devil hates the Hail Mary. And what you want to do is make life uncomfortable for the devil. And so you have to be prayed up. I look at the rosary as, as, as a weapon. You know, somebody just said it's a weapon. Yeah, it is in in in, in demonic and uh, spiritual warfare. So I would I would uh, rededicate myself to the recitation of the rosary. And whenever you feel that something's going bump in the night, uh, just uh, uh, say a hail mary. And another good thing, regularly read those passages of scripture in which. Christ conquers the devil. So, and don't be overly afraid. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, the scripture says. And well, and Drew's pretty great too. He's coming up.